Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up, I'm going to be talking to a physicist and a linguist who have used complexity theory to model how regional dialects have changed in England during the 20th and 21st centuries. And I'm also going to find out why artificial intelligence may not be an intelligent choice when it comes to diagnosing COVID-19 from chest x-rays. But first, it's been a very exciting week in the world of astronomy. Scientists working on the LIGO and Virgo observatories have announced that they have made the first detection ever of gravitational waves from the merger of a black hole and a neutron star. The signal was spotted back in January 2020 and involved a nine-solar-mass black hole swallowing a 1.9-solar-mass neutron star. And what's more, just 10 days later, the detectors spotted a second signal, this time from the merger of a six-solar-mass black hole and a 1.5-solar-mass neutron star. In 2015, astronomers observed the first gravitational waves from the merger of two black holes. And in 2017, the first merger of two neutron stars. So this January 2020 pairing is definitely something new. But unlike the neutron star merger in 2017, no light or other electromagnetic radiation was seen from the black hole neutron star mergers. This suggests that the neutron stars were swallowed whole by the black holes without as much as a burp. You can read about these historic observations on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Black Holes Merging with Neutron Stars Have Been Spotted by LIGO Virgo for the First Time. Both of those mergers took place about one billion light years away, and I think it's incredible that we can detect gravitational waves which are tiny ripples in space-time from so far away. Much closer to home, two astronomers at the University of Pennsylvania have spotted a huge object that is entering the solar system from the Oort cloud, which is an immense shell of icy objects thought to envelop the solar system. Gary Bernstein and Pedro Bernardinelli found the object while sifting through data from the Dark Energy Survey Telescope, and they reckon it could be about 150 kilometers across, which they argue makes it the largest comet ever seen. The duo calculates that the object, which some are calling Comet Bernardinelli-Bernstein, will get as close as Saturn is to the Sun before heading back out in an orbit that takes about 5 million years to complete. Astronomers are looking forward to observing the comet as it gets closer to the sun, and I'm guessing that soon someone will claim it's an alien spacecraft. You can read more in an article by Keith Cooper called Huge Oort Cloud Object Has Been Spotted Entering the Solar System. Astronomers hoping to use the Square Kilometre Array were celebrating this week as the countries backing the proposed radio observatory have given the go-ahead to begin construction. 
The 2 billion euro facility will comprise a multitude of radio dishes and dipole antennas located in southern Africa and Australia. 30 years in the planning, the observatory should be built by 2028, and then it will give astronomers an unprecedented view of the early universe. It could also be used to detect gravitational waves by monitoring the frequencies of pulsars. You can read more about the square kilometer array in the article Construction Go-Ahead for 20 Billion Euro Square Kilometer Array, which is by Physics World's Michael Banks. England has a rich and fascinating diversity of regional dialects, which have changed over time, especially in the 80 or so years after the Second World War. Understanding what drives this change is a major challenge, and one that has attracted the attention of complexity researchers, a discipline that has attracted a good number of physicists. To talk about how complexity science can be used to understand shifting dialects, I'm joined down the line from the University of Portsmouth by the physicist James Burridge, and from the University of Cambridge by the linguist Tamsin Blackster, who have collaborated on a study of the spatial diffusion of English dialects. Hi, Tamsin and James. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. So I'm really looking forward to this because um, I absolutely love uh, English regional dialects. As you can hear from my voice, uh, I, I don't have one. And uh, <laughs> I find the whole concept fascinating. So I, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So James, the aim of your research was to investigate the role of spatial diffusion in the evolution of language. Can you explain what you mean by spatial diffusion and how it fits in with other mechanisms that drive language change? Okay, so in physics, uh, spatial diffusion is the, is the random motion of, of particles, which causes them to, to mix up. Uh, but for us, in our study of language evolution, the, the particles that are doing the mixing are people. And they, they move around in essentially two different ways in our model. So first of all, they move around their home location. So they diffuse around their home location, meeting other speakers who are also located nearby. And also, from time to time, they make much bigger moves where they transfer their home location to some new place. So there's really two kinds of diffusion going on, long-range diffusion and short-range diffusion. And at the same time, uh, because this is a model of language, they are also um, speaking to each other. And in particular, the younger ones are learning uh, how to speak and what different linguistic features um, are in their local com community. And they're, they're picking up those linguistic features and building up their own language state. Now, there's, there's some choice about the model, you know, when it comes to, to how that state gets picked up. And um, I think the really important thing about our, our model is that it's simple and that it's conformity driven. So what that means is that um, when our young speakers are listening to the different features in their environment, they preferentially select the ones that are already most common. From a physicist's point of view, what's interesting about that is it generates surface tension in the model. And that means that 
interfaces between different spatial areas where different linguistic features are in use form to begin with, and then they behave like the surfaces of, of, of bubbles. So that's, that's the core model, and that's how the diffusion and the copying comes in. But then, of course, it may be that that's not enough to explain what's going on. So we also allow for the possibility that certain features, for one reason or another, gain some special status and get preferentially copied. We don't have ourselves a, we're agnostic about the, the mechanism that creates that bias. And there are reasons for that, which I think uh, Tamsin might go into in a minute. But for us, we, we just allow for the fact that certain features, for, for one reason or another, gain special status. Yeah. Um, and if I could jump in there. So that bias then um it, that bias in our model then sort of refers to lots of other ideas about mechanisms of linguistic change which have been put forward in the linguistics um literature so we might think that uh certain features of languages are just in um inherently likely to change in a particular direction so there we talk about system internal biases linguistic system internal biases and this is things like um there's good evidence that certain kinds of irregularities in, in grammars are just likely to work themselves out over time. So that might produce a kind of mechanism of change in a particular direction, which is independent of these speakers um, learning from each other. And then there are also social normative biases. If speakers are, through, say, universal education, um, exposed uniformly to an idea that certain ways of speaking are better than others or more correct than others, uh, that's going to produce a a mechanism of changing on average towards those those kind of uh, higher valued um, variants. Those are some of the kind of ways in which we the kind of other processes we think might be going on that are not spatial per se. And there's also things like mass media, which gives you exposure to speakers from many different locations. All of these are things which have been discussed in the literature and which we're not trying to model. We're not trying to differentiate between these in our model. We're just um, putting them all, all under this one category of of bias, and we we should probably also add that I mean this model is quite simple, and it it doesn't contain a mechanism that actually allows a new innovation to take place. I mean, it can happen in the model. You know, if our linguistic space contains a new variant, but at very low level, these biases can cause it to grow. But we we haven't explicitly modelled the mechanism that 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 creates that change. And I think one of the reasons that we, we haven't done that is that it's actually quite a hot topic. But I think uh, we, we both agree that the, the data required to test one hypothesis against another for these spontaneous change processes is just really not available yet. You just need such high resolution data for so many different people at such kind of high intensity that it's it's just not there. And even though our, our data is very high resolution comparatively, it's still nowhere near good enough to infer that type of information. Um, can we just talk a bit of, about the data? That uh, that was actually one thing that I found really fascinating when when, when I read your paper. Um, you, you, your study used two comprehensive sets of data. One is the the survey of English dialects, which was done in the nineteen fifties. And the other is 
the English Dialects app, which uh, I suppose, as its uh, as its name suggests, is more recent. Um, it collected data in 2016. Th- these two surveys are fascinating in themselves. I think uh, one of them asked people what word they used for a snail, I think, which <laughs> to me is, is really interesting. So, so Tamsin, can you, can you give us a flavor of, of how these surveys were done? So I mean, these are about as different as you could get as two kind of um, tools for data collection. The, the Survey of English Dialects, the SED, um, was gathered by individual field workers traveling to villages all over the country, of the country there being England with a bit of what is now Wales plus the Isle of Man. They would arrive in a village, find locals willing to take part in the survey, mostly just by sort of sitting down and talking to people. And then they would interview them. And that interview, um, the structured part of which was over a thousand questions long, uh, took potentially days to get through. So this is a very comprehensive data collection tool at the individual respondent level. But that also explains why it took them over a decade to survey just 313 localities. Um, And those interviews they would transcribe um, on paper using International Phonetic Alphabet. In the latter part of the survey, they also recorded them on tape, but it's the transcriptions that we're using. The EDA, well, there's, there's no way we could afford to reproduce that kind of survey methodology now. So the EDA, the English Dialects app, um, was a project by a team uh, including, well, led by Dr. Adrian Lehmann, but also some others, and I was on this team as well. It's a, a smartphone app which presents itself as a game so it asks the user uh, 26 questions, so quite a lot of a smaller tool, about how they think they pronounce words or how what words they use for things, and then it predicts, it guesses where they're from. So that's the game part of it. And that's sort of what's appealing to users, that is this sort of uh, magical seeming prediction about where they grew up. Uh, at the end of that, it then asks them if they'd be willing to take part in our, our science and um, if they say yes, it asks them demographic questions, including where they're actually from. So that gives us uh, a bit over 100,000 answers to the 26 questions, of whom about 50,000 uh, then give us the demographic information, which we can then compare to the, um, to the SED. They're very, very different collection tools, but the EDA was designed to be able to be a follow-up to the SED. So most of those, all but one of those questions um, were also selected from the thousand plus questions that were asked in the SED. So, so you asked people about snails then? We did, the, uh, yes. Um, and, and how do you do that? Do you, um, do, you, do you show them a picture of a snail? Because presumably you don't want to lead them into saying snail, do you? You don't, exactly. So in, um, there are different ways, of different, uh, there are different approaches to that problem. Uh, we, in the EDA tried to reproduce exactly what the SED did so that the data would be maximally comparable. And for that one, I think the, the wording in the question is, what would you call the animal which carries its house on its back? Which is sufficiently uh, clear that you do get the right you get the, the right answer reliably. It is sometimes a problem, though. How do you describe um, these concepts without using words? And in some cases, users were shown diagrams, though not for any of the questions in the EDA. So, so, so that's a, a description of the data. But the thing, the thing that I find sort of most fascinating is how do you convert 
that data into into quantities, I'm guessing numerical quantities, that, that are suitable for, for mathematical analysis? The answer to that, to that question um, is different for different for different cases, because the ways in which language use can vary are very different to one another. So our model works with discrete data, with discrete um, options. So the simplest case is something like lexical variation. So this would be like the word for snail. Um, we can basically quantify there are this set of different words that are used in different parts of the country traditionally. And so a, a user simply has already, it just gives us one of these discrete options straight away. So that doesn't require much modification to use in the model. At the other end of the scale of difficulty, we have things like variation in the pronunciation of particular vowels, where if we were taking um, an acoustic measurement, or indeed if we were um, if we had X-rays available and we could take a precise measurement of where people's articulators are in their mouth, these things are varying on lots of different continuous scales simultaneously. And so there we need to reduce the this continuous scale of variation potentially on a greater than two-dimensional space down to a series of discrete points. And in both surveys, that's already done to some extent by the survey design. So in the English dialect app, users are already being offered a set of options and then they pick the one they think sounds most like them. In the SED, the survey of English dialects, it's a little harder. The act of transcribing those pronunciations is already reducing the space to some extent. So the way that um, the international phonetic alphabet was used by the field workers, in the case of vowels, say, gives you about 112 different possible positions for the tongue. Um, so there is already a kind of reduction of the space to discrete points there. Uh, but in practice, we're reducing it further in response to the kind of spatial clusters that exist in the data. James, did you want to chip in on that? Well, I mean, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, it is, it is quite a heavy simplification, which makes it just much easier to uh, model mathematically. I mean, for one thing, re I mean, it, really, our model is essentially a, a coarse you can think of it as a coarse-grained icing model. I mean, it, the, the equations are kind of not that dissimilar to the time-dependent Ginsburg-Landau equation describing coarse-grained so coarsening in um, two-dimensional uh, magnetic models. Um, and so the fact that you've got a discrete number of states means that your kind of spin states are effectively mapped directly onto linguistic states. And so that just makes everything easier. Um, but of course, yeah, as Tamsin was saying, some of these variables are actually intrinsically not discrete. Um, but I think we, we, we don't think that matters too much because we're not actually modeling the explicit change mechanism where that discrete versus, versus continuous effect might be more important. And so, James, what, what was your hypothesis um, for what was driving language change? And, and how does it compare to, to previous models? So our, our simplest hypothesis, so we really have two. So the, our simplest one is that the changes that have taken place since the end of the 19th century up to the beginning of the 20th century are basically entirely driven by diffusion. So the, the migration of people and the movement of the daily movement of people together with a copying process, which includes some conformity, which generates surface tension. So that's the kind of the, the, the simplest hypothesis. And then our next most complex hypothesis is that, in fact, the, the certain variants gain special status for one reason or another, be it linguistic or social. And that 
bias, that bias towards certain features is necessary in order to explain the changes from the, the 19th to the 20th century. And the, the way we tested it was to take our very detailed maps from those two points in time and simply set the first map as the initial condition of the model, run the model forward 100 years and see if it hit today's distributions. So in some cases, we found that it did. And in some cases, we found that it didn't. And when it didn't, we discovered what the biases, we inferred what the biases must have been in order to get from one point to the other. So in terms of how this fits into the previous models, so I think a a directly comparable model, which is even simpler and has been actually pretty well studied, is this idea that the um, that linguistic features are copied in what I would call a proportional way, which means that the probability that a feature will survive into the next generation is proportional to its current relative frequency. And in fact, that is a model, it's a really old model, actually, um, from genetics. It's the genetic model of neutral evolution. Uh, where where the things being copied are alleles. And some really interesting work's been done on that, that analogy, um, particularly by um, Richard Blythe, who is a, uh, a physicist interested in language. And um, the, the big difference between those that type of copying process and the control, conformity-driven process is that in conformity, you get surface tension. Um, and that's not to say that the proportional copying doesn't generate surface tension, but sorry, doesn't generate spatial variation. It's just that the evolution of those spatial structures is really quite different. And you have to do quite extreme things to some of the parameters to get the spatial variation. And actually, uh, Tamsin and I, our previous work was to try and figure out whether we could really infer whether surface tension existed in these spatial distributions or or not for for some English dialects. And our conclusion was that we thought it, we think it did. So, I mean, there's a huge amount of work done on on language modelling. So I couldn't possibly describe it all, but I think those are the the, the sort of the most, that's the most relevant comparison. Is surface tension there or isn't? And, and Tamsin, in, in your study, you looked at factors um, such as how far children have to travel to school, how many people move in and out of communities, and how likely young people are to conform to the local dialect. Wh- where did you get that information from, and, and, and how did you quantify it um, you know, for input into your model? Well, I think it's useful to start off with just a very quick um, example, which is of thinking of a situation of variation between languages instead of between dialects. So if you imagine a family with a very with very small children moving to another country where the language being used by the community is completely different to their own, those children grow up speaking the local language as natives. And that demonstrates a couple of really useful things, important things. Firstly, it's that it's children during language acquisition that are doing most of the learning and changing. And secondly, that they do this by identifying majority use and conforming to it, as James has been saying, because otherwise they would end up at some weird approximation of whatever language their parents speak and a local language. So that's why we looked at children's um, mobility patterns particularly. If you assume that it's children's mobility patterns that are particularly important, then your definition of the kind of local community in which those, in which those 
majority use patterns are being identified by the speakers is, is obvious. It's, it's schools and it's the catchment areas of schools. So given that information, you can look at the numbers of schools and their distribution across the country over the 20th century to give you an idea of the, um, of the scale on which people are doing relevant movement. And then we have this other sort of secondary um, type of movement, which is the, the long distance movement, which James mentioned at the beginning. And there we can look at data from things like the census and, and other large scale surveys where people's movement, movement uh, behaviours across their lifetimes have been measured. And that can give us a measure of how often we think people would be displaced into entirely new communities. Yeah, so that's that's roughly where those kinds of inputs into our model came from and why it's specifically those which are important. And so, James, what's the conclusion of your study and, and how does it help us understand how language changes? Okay, so our, our sort of primary conclusion is that there are some uh, language features that uh, can be explained or their evolution over the 20th century can be explained as purely an effect of uh, migration and diffusion and this these copying rules. But I think in, for the majority of features, it looks like there is some additional process which is inducing bias on particular features. And uh, I th- we, we think that in most cases, that bias is, has a social origin. So we are able to make a statement about what that bias is for each features, which features have the most bias. And of course, then because our model is is dynamical and it has an initial condition which can be rolled forward, we can actually make a prediction about the whole of the 20th century at any point in time. And we can actually go forward in time as well if we want to. We we have done that with a with a particular feature. Um, so so that's our sort of first conclusion. And then our, our second conclusion is that uh, these these surface tension effects do seem to be important important. So with with surface tension, the location of these linguistic boundaries, they're called isoglosses in the linguistic community, they are they're partially predictable using the surface tension theory. And it looks like um, a fair few of them lie where we think they should lie, according to the surface tension theory. Yeah, so I think those are our those those are our main conclusions. And Tamsin, did you want to add something? Yeah, I mean I that? could add the what the particular example that we've rolled forward into the future is. Uh, so this is something which is called the foot-strut split in uh, in the linguistics literature. And this is a difference in the pronunciation of um, the vowel of words like strut and luck and put and buck, um, and words like look and put and book. So historically, speakers in the south of England had that difference. Um, so we'd say they had the split. And speakers further north didn't, with a dividing line bisecting England roughly from the Wash to the Avon. And that kind of dividing line is very common because of the surface tension effects and the shape of the coastline. Um, and in our data, we see that the northern variant, so that's where luck and look are both pronounced with the same vowel, so something like look. Um, we see that variant retreating. And so our model would predict that it will all have disappeared by 2066, which is the point we roll the model forward to. Um, so that's, I think, a nice example that like, makes clear what this model would allow us to, to in theory, to predict. I also, if I would also say a quick word about what we think the model. So James mentioned that the model um, points towards these biases, and they're mostly being 
social. So one of the things that I think our results allow us to do is distinguish, or at least have some hints towards distinguishing between these different mechanisms that linguists have suggested. So the kind of system internal biases where the language just sort of uh, tends to change in a certain direction versus these normative biases introduced by education and by attitudes. Well, actually, most of the clear examples we see seem to be those um, best explained by those normative um, biases introduced by by education and by um, valuations of different ways of speaking. So that's that's I think a really important finding of, of the of the study. And and so what's next um, for for you two? Are you are are you planning to do any further research using these databases, or are are you going to be looking at at other data? I think um, probably here our next step will be to use a similar model or the same model to look at different data. So one um, one case we'd like to look at is we have quite a lot of data for language change in medieval Norway. Um, so very, very different data collected in a very different way. But it has some advantages in that it's over, instead of being two sample points in time, it's over hundreds of years. So that will allow us to really explore how well the model predicts these intervening states, these exact kind of um, the dynamics of change as it as it happens. Um, so that's one thing we'd like to do uh, with this. Um, and James, did you want to say a word about other ideas we've got? Oh, well, yes. I mean, I think the, the, the Norway one's quite exciting uh, because it, the, the data is so much more detailed and uh, will probably force us to make the model a bit more sophisticated. I mean, I think one of the big problems with studying linguistics is that using physics is the shortage of data. I mean, there seems to be a lot of data, but if you actually want to build a kind of a model of society and roll it forwards and backwards, then you need a lot of data to calibrate it and validate it because there's just no point in building a model or fitting it to a minuscule amount of data. It doesn't tell you whether your model is right or wrong. So what's nice about the, the Norway data is it's so kind of detailed and long lasting that you can really kind of test the model. You can really kind of check whether it's lying to you or not. Um, now, the other interesting thing about all these models is that they are quite simple, and that means that you can apply them to lots of different processes. So there's nothing in our model which really is specifically tied to language. So kind of any characteristic which you copy off other people could in principle be modeled in this way. So one of the things we're quite interested in investigating is whether things like voting behavior can be usefully studied with these very, very detailed spatial models. But again, that requires quite high resolution data. And we're sort of in the process of trying to get hold of some of that. Oh, well, that's really interesting. Uh, well, good, good luck with your, with your future research. Tamsin and James have published a paper describing their research in the Journal of Physics Complexity, which you can find on the IOP Science website. Just look for the title, Inferring the Drivers of Language Change using spatial models. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks very much for having us. Thanks for having us. Machine learning has been a boon across many disciplines, including medical physics. But sometimes systems are not as good as they first appear. I'm joined by my physics world colleague, Tammy Freeman, to talk about a recent study about the shortcomings of systems proposed for detecting COVID-19 from chest x-rays. Hi, Tammy. Hi, Hamish. So, Tammy, what are these machine learning models and how are they being used? 
Okay, so as you say, artificial intelligence is being developed for many medical applications. And one area that's seeing a lot of interest is using this AI to help doctors interpret medical images. So with the onset of the pandemic, the scientific community built thousands of machine learning models to identify COVID-19 from chest X-rays. Now, this sounds like a great application of AI, and we've covered some of these developments on physics world. And the idea is that these models learn which features in the X-ray images are indicative of a particular disease, in this case, COVID-19. And then they use this information to diagnose unknown images. So there's many benefits of this approach. So, for example, it can help guide treatments for possible COVID infections in settings where there's limited access to the PCR tests, or it could be used to clarify suspected false negatives from PCRs. But while there's been numerous publications reporting machine learning models with high performance, it's actually really important to evaluate the trustworthiness of these models before they're used in a clinical setting. So to do this, two graduate students at the University of Washington have audited hundreds of published machine learning models intended for classifying chest X-rays as positive or negative COVID-19. Wow, a hundred, that's, uh, or hundreds, that's lots of <laughs> models. So, so what are the potential problems uh, with the machine learning models that these two researchers found? Specifically, they were investigating whether the machine learning models were generalizable. So what this means is that the model will classify x-rays correctly wherever they're from. So a model developed and trained at one hospital will still work well with x-rays acquired at a different hospital. And if a model isn't generalizable, one reason may be because it uses shortcuts when it's learning to interpret images. And, and so what are these shortcuts? I mean, are these, are these legitimate tricks that are used in machine learning or are they uh, sort of a bit cheeky? No, no. So a machine learning model should make its decisions based on features in the X-ray images that indicate the presence or absence of COVID-19. So your real medical features. But there's also a worrying possibility that the models instead make spurious associations with non-relevant features such as text or arrows on an image. And this is shortcut learning. And as you can imagine, it's really not a good thing to happen. Right. So th this is a situation where the, the, the machine learning is, is actually focusing on something else, something that has absolutely nothing to do with, with the task at hand and, and somehow using yeah. this as a, as, as a way of finding the, the positives. Exactly. And, and so what did the researchers find um, when they assessed their models? Did they find uh, a lot of this shortcut learning was, was messing things up? Well, what they did first is they, they were testing whether the machine learning models were generalizable. And to do this, they trained the model on one data set and then compare its predictive performance on new X-ray images from the same data set and from a completely different data set. And they found that the models had high performance on internal test data, but the accuracy was actually halved on the external data set. And this led them to think that the loss of performance was due to the models using shortcuts. So to look deeper into this idea, they assessed the trained models using a thing called saliency maps. And what these do is they highlight the regions of each image that the model is using um, to classify, so that the areas that the model thinks is important. And some maps show medically relevant areas, such as the lungs, as you'd expect. 
but others pointed to uh, text or arrows or the corners of the images. And this suggests, as you say, that the model is interpreting the COVID status based on these spurious features rather than actual medical parameters. Now, really interestingly, they did a test where they took one COVID negative and one COVID positive chest X-ray and they swapped the text markers on the two. And this is basically just the letter R indicating the right side of the image. And they swapped these markers. They didn't change anything else on the images. And when they did this, the model classified the negative X-ray as positive and vice versa. And, And this really shows the significance and the potential problems caused by this shortcut learning. And as part of their study, they also emphasized the importance of explainable AI. So where the decisions made by the machine learning models, they need to be understandable and traceable by humans. So this research, um, can it be used to build better machine learning networks? The authors, they make several suggestions, ways that could alleviate this shortcut learning. So um, firstly, improved collection of training data. So, for example, every institution involved in a study should collect um, positive and negative data, not one or the other. And they also suggest that clinicians are involved in designing the study and collecting the data um, and that they may might be able to help identify confounding features that the model might start to rely on. And they emphasise that machine learning models must be audited before they're applied at other locations. So basically, they're hoping that people become more aware of the kinds of mistakes that machine learning models can make. And they hope this paper will open up discussions about the importance of auditing these models and also creating explainable artificial intelligence. Wow, that, that, that's really interesting. And, and, you know, as you say, I suppose this is a problem isn't it, that things like machine learning and artificial intelligence have. It's, uh, it's often never quite clear what they're, you know, what they're focusing in on to get their results, because I suppose that pe- people tend to, to, to focus on the results rather than, uh, r- rather than what's going on in the algorithm. Exactly how they're actually getting to their conclusions, yeah. So you can find out more about this research in an article on the Physics World website. It's written by Catherine Steffel. Just look for the headline, Machine Learning Models That Detect COVID-19 on Chest X-Rays Are Not Suitable for Clinical Use. Thanks for being on the podcast, Tammy. Thanks, Hamish. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Tamsin Blackster, James Burridge, and Tammy Freeman for joining me today. And as always, a special thank you to our producer, Callum Jelf. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, please do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, which features an interview with the physicist and award-winning author, Carlo Rivelli. He talks about Helgoland, his latest book about the origins of quantum mechanics. You can find all the stories podcasts on the Physics World website, and also at your favorite podcast listening app. Physics World.